Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. All right, welcome back to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Summertime edition and excited to be back with you once more coming off of our summer preview episode that we had last time. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2 just down from the airport. All locked and loaded and ready to go with the new theaters opened and ready to welcome you for the summertime. Don't forget about their 550 movie nights that they've got going on Tuesdays and student yeah. night on th- school night on Thursday because you don't yes. have to be a student. You just need to be involved, work at a school. That's right. Yeah, just bring your ID along. I believe it's six dollars yep. for those. That's right. Yeah, and those new theaters are just fantastic. The new theater rooms that they have open in there at the Bemidji Theater on Highway Two. We're thrilled to be able to partner with them as a sponsor here for the podcast, and we're thrilled that the construction project all is good to go. I don't see any of the the garbage bins out in front there anymore. They're ready for summertime and ready to welcome you for the summer. The best compliment I can give them, I took my kiddo just last week to go see Across the Spider-Verse, and we're sitting there in the dark, and he's got his little seat that can move with the button, and he just gives me a look, and I can see with the, with the theater lighting, Dad, this is cool. Oh, so that <laughs> you're in, you're in. Hey, really quick, since you went, without getting too much into spoilers, how'd you like Across the Spider-Verse? It was good. Uh, we liked the first one better. But it was good, and already this thing has only been out, what, two weeks now at the time we're recording this, and it has already hauled in in just that two weeks the entire theatrical run of the first one. Wow. So that's something. That just I just read that this morning. Well, that's just how good the first one was, and then the anticipation now for the second one. I've heard there's an upcoming remix for the sound on this one, kind of like The Dark Knight Rises where the sound mix was – it's interesting, definitely. I didn't have a hard time following it. You know, visually it gets a little, you know, uh, I don't know how to put it, skitzy, but that's by design. There's a lot going on. Yeah, if yeah. You, well, if you saw the first one, you glitch, and so there's that, and you're still talking about universes, but now you're jumping from universe to universe rather than they're all coming together. It was a good movie. We enjoyed it. Um, maybe a little heady for a kiddo my kid's age, uh, but he enjoyed it. That was good. I got yeah. it. I followed it. Good. Recommended. Okay, that's interesting with the sound mix because, yeah, with The Dark Knight Rises, they did that six-minute preview where they had the opening prologue with the the airplane heist, and it was from that test that then they determined they were going to remix and and change Bane's voice and how it sounded a little bit going into the proper theatrical release. Mid-theatrical release, that's really interesting that they're planning on doing that. It just—it was a voice that it just kind of... I don't want to say it faded into the background, but it was hard to distinguish from other things. You just what? What did he say? And everybody in the theater is looking huh. at the person. What? Wait, what? What did he say? What he said about what about your? And that's it, they just needed to clean it up just one more pass. And I'm getting the vibe. Some of that is maybe having something to do with this one. Whether it's going to happen, I've just heard some talk. Um, but it was a good movie. I still recommend it, and clearly they hadn't remixed the sound when I saw it, so it was a good movie. So the Summer Slate is just getting underway. That, of course, is one of the big talkers, but of course, 
the writer strike continues. Yep. Now, you told me the directors uh, the directors officially have their new contract with the Directors Guild, but now the Actors Guild is also yep. starting to come onto the horizon. Going into this, there were three big contracts. You're not going to make anything happen without these guys. Um, but the directors, they got their deal. The Actors Guild, I think they're good through the end of June, I think it is. And uh, they've all been in solidarity with one another. And nobody, not any of the writers or the actors or Nork that the directors got their deal, they got their deal. Um, but if they can't get this figured out uh, and the the actors go on strike, then – and I understand there's a lot of people, well, they make billions of dollars per movie. Uh, some of the big names do. But many of those people that are just going movie paycheck to movie paycheck – that's a different story. So you're talking about uh, going by the guild and the union. You're not talking about the George Clooney money, that Tom Cruise money. That's a this whole other thing. This is about the whole. Yeah, this is about the whole. This is not about the marquee names. You're going to get a lot of people that play the third cop on the left, that they're going to be paid whatever the guild rules are. And uh, union pays okay, but everything's going up. So. Everybody starts somewhere. I, I'm reminded of that thinking about that Clint Eastwood episode yeah. that we did and talking about the odyssey of his career and the time that it took him to get going. I mean, there's an example, sure, from decades past, but uh, of what that beginning looks like, and it's obviously changed now, but there's there's truth to it, too, that Everyone starts somewhere, and that somewhere might be relatively small. Everyone likes to get down on somebody. Well, you're making... Not necessarily. Yeah. You know, there's a group that certainly does make bank, and uh, I don't think they need to be coddled to anymore. Uh, if you want things to work, you have, you have a good foundation. And the foundation does not stop on the executive upper, upper, upper suite penthouse level. It's down in the basement. So get a good foundation, pay them what they owe them. Otherwise, at the box office, The Little Mermaid has done very, very well. Yeah. I, I know friends who have gone to see it who've just been entranced by it. They've they've really enjoyed it. People who like The Little Mermaid story in particular have really enjoyed it. Transformers just continues to... Baffle to me. Rake in money from somewhere. This past weekend, they were tops at the box office this weekend of June 9th through the 11th. Uh, people, there's still an interest in going to see these movies. And that is fine. You know, we did our preview episode and clearly I wasn't looking forward to it, but if you Neither are... Neither of us were. If you are, go see it. Go see it again if you want to. That's that's what it's all about. If it interests you or not, whether it interests me or not, go see it. I hope you enjoy it. I mean that sincerely. Yeah, I mean, Fast X, there's Fast that's, 10, there's proof of that too. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. That just, I mean, it's kind of being kept quiet. It's not bombing, but it's certainly is smoldering at best. It just it didn't make number 1. It just it's not going so well. So whether they there will be more cuz you know the spoiler alert now the rock does pop up in this thing so he's going to be back. Apparently he's going to be doing another some kind of spin-off or he'll be in the main one or whatever it is. They're not done, but I don't think the appetite is there and it's starting to show up on the box office figures. Time and money heal all wounds in families. <laughs> Anyway. And you know, and the other thing is coming up, we just did the Indiana Jones episode. The fifth yes. one is coming out. The early buzz, the early reviews are saying, yeah, it's okay. It's nothing special. Probably better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but it's not overwhelming people. It's it's fun and it's entertaining, but it also seems the people of my generation are the ones that are really drooling for it and not say the millennials, the younger group, like, who cares about see this old guy with a whip? Wait, what, what, what? 
but that seems to be what the sentiment is. So when it comes out, we'll see how it does. But whether it's good or it's not good, it's one of those. Like I just said, if you want to see it, go see it. I want to see it. I will be there. And that's important to note. The critics may have their own angle to it. It's about the fans yeah. as well. It's about are you enjoying what you're seeing there and getting something out of that. Spielberg not directing this one, but he's very hands-on producing. James yeah. Mangold is doing it, and he's very, very, you know, is established that he can do this. Yes. And uh, Spielberg said he loved it. So, of course, that might have been in PR mode. We'll see. Great topic for today's episode. Dave. Before we get into oh, it, though, oh, we sure. need to remind the people there will be spoilers ahead. A lot of them today. Even though these are things you've never seen, quote-unquote, uh, we don't want you to go into this completely blinded. So if we start talking about a movie that you haven't seen and it's on your, oh, I got to see this. It's on my, it's on my queue list. Be aware, there are going to be some heavy spoilers forthcoming. You are hereby warned here on out. Yes, this topic idea came up several weeks ago, and this was from Dave. And boy, I I loved it right away. I was like, how have we not discussed? deleted scenes well you always talk about what you see and it's always deleted scenes whether they lived in lore you know rumor has it that they filmed the scene where the such and such and a lot of times that comes out uh there and most of these scenes i think have all been seen at some point whether it's an extras feature or it just kind of gets kicked out on the internet somewhere or a storyboard something something yeah. comes out but i think uh, at least the ones i have some footage exists somewhere if you dig around for it well deleted scenes for years were like urban legends of that this got left on the cutting room floor that was considered but it wasn't put in there but now that dvds blu-rays 4k ultra hd now that now that movies have come along where there's more to it than just that you you get the the special features that come in there like the gag reel or like a behind the scenes featurette things like that but also, deleted scenes are now easier to access than ever. Where but, but now we not can, always. Not always, yeah. But but with movies of like the last two and a half decades or so, it's easier than ever to be able to see some of these deleted scenes. Now, not all of them make it into the quote-unquote deleted scenes package. There's There's stuff out there that's still urban legend or that we have photos of. Uh, well, this was filmed, but it never was even really put into a scene. Or it, it's been clearly reported and and confirmed, for lack of a better term, that such and such did happen, was filmed, didn't come out. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example, just real quick off the top of my head. Um, there was The movie Clue was a really good movie, and as part of the gimmick, they had three different endings. Very the, unique. Depending on which movie theater you went to, it would have ending A, B, or C. Well, when you got it on home video at the time, all three endings were there. Well, this is what happened. Or it could have been like this. Or, but there was a fourth ending that was shot, was not shown. It was not included. There was a D ending. And just, I think it was because, I think we've got this. I think we're good. And it was, by all accounts, the least good of the four. So that one got the axe and the other three made it. So, But it exists. But then there's also directorial and production yeah. reasons why deleted scenes never see the light of day. Lots of movies out there where the director had a lot of control or a lot of power putting it together, but made a gargantuan movie where they had to be able to cut it down to size a little bit. I think of Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now as an example of that, or think of The Godfather 3 
a little is another example of one where Godfather 3 should have been a 15 minute movie if you were really cutting out the stuff that shouldn't have been there in the first place. <laughs> well, remember just a few years ago they released that that reworked quote unquote yeah. director's cut. Director's cuts are are famous or infamous in some instances. Think Blade Runner, which I'm sure will come up a little bit yep, more today. It will. Director's cut Ridley Scott had all these different things that he wanted to do with it. They had to really trim it down. Lots of examples like that where Deleted scenes aren't just deleted scenes. They are portions of the movie that had to be cut out for reasons even beyond the creative side. Sometimes it's timing. Um, There's one I'll give you right now uh, that a lot of people don't know about, and it's The Wizard of Oz. They did a huge dance number, sing-along, doing the jitterbug. And it was a very, uh, it was, it was involved. I mean, it was like a, I don't know, six minute, seven minute sequence, big dance. It took, you know, weeks to rehearse and all this. They shot it and they cut it out of the movie. And a lot of people are unaware of that. Well, why did they do it? Well, maybe it was the tone. It was a very upbeat point where The Wizard of Oz is kind of more downbeat in a lot of ways. It's a lot more tension through the movie. And it wasn't even in the middle. Except when they're following the Yellow Brick Road. Well, there's moments where it's obviously family friendly. It's not heavy, heavy. But, I mean, given the tone of the movie, to see the wizard. it jumps off. But it was also for timing. Guys, this is already a long movie. Can we lose the jitterbug sequence and everything that leads into it? That's like six plus minutes. Sure, okay, great. Now the movie's getting a little shorter. And it may be as simple as that so but then there's other reasons to get a little more involved and we'll kind of take a tour of these and you know at least some of the rumors if we haven't had confirmed so and so said and such and such indicated that but the rumors point to we'll kind of break them down as we get to them before we get into some of the specific examples i have a question for you dave that just came to mind how do you feel about director's cuts and about reworked versions of movies when we already have the version that we know and have seen and maybe have become really used to. Does it feel weird for you sometimes when you're watching director's cuts of movies or are you able to look past it? It depends. Um, There are some movies that I love. And if there's, I don't care if it's cut footage where you get, you know, William Shatner as Admiral Kirk and he's standing on the bridge and you hear the director in the background cut. And then he goes and grabs a bagel and, and has a sip of his coffee in uniform, in costume. And there's Leonard Nimoy smiling. To me, that's exciting stuff. Now, that's not part of the movie, but it's just more stuff that you love. You know, it's like saving the wrapping paper, Special even though you features. want the gifts. Yeah. yeah. So things like that, if I can get a little more, a different version, a different angle, or what, yeah, that's interesting to me. But I want the original preserved, and that's where I have problems with, say, the Star Wars trilogy. We've talked about this before, so I won't go in ad nauseum. At some point, you need to leave it alone. And even Spielberg, who reworked E.T. and took the guns out of the police officer's hands, has since gone back and said, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. So it it, it depends. It really depends. Or George Lucas messing with the original Star Wars That's movies. what I was Again, getting at, too. Yeah. And again, and again. Well, to the point you can't, again. you are not able to see the original theatrical, original trilogy. They almost, unless you still have them on VHS from the day, they don't exist. Right. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And there's theories and there's there's you know rumors about some of the why, but that's is, another story. Is the one exception to that, at least for you, Superman 2? I'm going to get to that. But that, well, maybe we, if you want, we can start with that. But it's not so much Superman, it's especially Superman 2. So we've talked about it before, but just to kind of bring it back up again, they are doing Superman and Superman 2. This is the Christopher Reeve directed by Richard Donner, and they were filming them simultaneously. And long story short, we're not getting this one done on time. We need to stop doing two, even though over half of it had been shot. 
we need to focus on one to get one out. And they did, and they got it out. But Donner and the Salkins, who produced those movies, they were not getting along. Donner gets fired. They hire another guy. He has to reshoot a lot of the movie so that it would be officially directed by Richard Lester was his name. But for years and years, there was all this rumor about the different version of Superman 2 that Richard Donner had done that was less slapsticky. They finally did a director's cut. It wasn't perfect, but there were some scenes that just straight up were not shot. But the best that they or could do... Or on green screen. Well, not even on green screen, but it, it, there was a little bit of unfinished special effects. But even uh, the scene where Lois Lane tricks Superman or Clark Kent into revealing he is Superman, the theatrical version involves a pink bear rug and a fireplace, and it was kind of corny, where the other one was going to be she had a gun with blanks, and they never got around to filming that scene. But they did film it as a screen test. So yeah. we're talking cardboard sets... They don't have the look of the characters right. And it was just a screen test to see how Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder did. And that's what's included into this movie. It's yeah. not perfect, but it's as close as you're going to get. And uh, they had to reuse the ending from the first one because that was going to be the ending. They changed that all in the rush. It's a long story, but that's in a huge example. Uh, for a long time, it was rumored, nope, those, that footage doesn't exist. It's all been destroyed. And it turns out it wasn't all destroyed as much as they had. They got, and they got it put together with Richard Donner's help, and it, it got to see the light of day. It's hugely interesting to see the theatrical and then watch watch all three of them, Superman 1 and then both versions of 2, if you have a long marathon ability. It's, it's fascinating, honestly. Yes. Yeah, I liked watching the Richard Donner version when you loaned me the movie just to see what the original concept was, especially when you have a project like that where – you have divisiveness in terms of what kind of movie you are getting out of it, what the finished product is, and that it's maybe not exactly what was in the intended spirit. Well, and I, th- I have a feeling you're starting to go down a road into something particular that I will join you on. I'm getting a feeling you might be talking about uh, the young solo movie, Star Wars. Oh, no, I, I wasn't necessarily referring to that, Like, and we haven't... It would be a natural to go down that route because what yeah. happened there is not that there was, dissimilar. There was creative difference that took place. Now, do we have scenes and stuff that, no. that we have not seen out there? Like, no, it was it was all in the process of actually making it and writing it and rewriting it and reproducing it uh, that we had all of that. But that's kind of an extension of this topic of deleted scenes is that it's often th- – there are creative reasons why. There are overhead reasons why, but sometimes there's – Creative reasons where there's a tug of war going on as to why. Well, you have the two guys, uh, Lord and Miller, right? I'm getting that right? Yes. That did the Lego movies and a bunch of other things, and they're involved in the new Spider-Man movies also. But they were brought into, and they're a, they're a duo. They direct together, so that's just part of the package. Usually when you get two directors, it can be a problem, but there are exceptions, and this is one of them. But the problem was... The story had been written out by um, um, Lawrence Kazan and his son. And what was written on the page and what was coming back in dailies were hugely different. So what was being shot had very little resemblance to what was on the page. Whoa, 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 guys, wait a minute. Now it's one thing. And in comedies a lot. They'll give me one shot where it's as written. All right, guys, now fool around and let's have some fun. And pretty much any Jim Carrey that, movie, that, Anchorman, that so on and so forth. That makes me think of the way that Stanley Kubrick tricked uh, George C. Scott in Dr. Strangelove with his general character because George C. Scott was irate after the movie was released seeing that the 
have fun with it, goof around with it stuff was what actually got put on the screen because that's what Kubrick wanted. But George C. Scott wanted it played more button up and straight up and and stuff. The director knows what he was trying to get. And that's that's ultimately what you're doing. You work for the producer and the director works for the producer. As an actor, you work for the director and the producer. You do what they want you to do. So that's one thing. But the director was not following what was supposed to be going on. And so long story short, they let him go. And they brought in Ron Howard, and Ron Howard came in and, similar to Superman 2, had to reshoot most of the movie so that it would officially be a Ron Howard movie. And I don't think he did just enough. I think he pretty much reshot the whole movie, more or less. Um, whether it or not, a lot, yeah. Whether or not there's any scenes from the original group, I bet you there are, but what specifically they are, don't know. They still got credited. They were credited, but not as director. They were involved in some other, I forget what their official title was, but they were involved officially still even at the end. But the whole movie is different. So it'd be interesting to know very much like, well, I wonder what a Richard Donner version of Superman 2 was going to be like. I wonder what Miles uh, Miles Lord and, uh, and Miller were coming up with. Uh, when they did this solo movie, because by all accounts, it was going to be much more comedic, which makes sense with a lot of the work that they've done, much more lighthearted. Yes. And there is some weight to at least the final version of Solo, which by all accounts is much more resembling what was written by the Kasdan's father and son duo. But Ron Howard is a certainly capable director, and it turned out really well, and a lot of people that decided they were going to boycott the movie for this reason and that reason then finally saw it years later and realized, this is pretty good, I'd love to see a sequel, and you're not going to get one now. So I highly (laughs) doubt it. But that's a really interesting one where that's got nothing that's come out other than people know it's been talked about, and that's it. No footage. Um, nothing. To say nothing about a lot of the people get worked up about Rogue One. Well, there was the thing with the TIE Fighter and the bridge. Who cares? It didn't make the final cut, but it wasn't, you know, to fool you. It wasn't to make you think that, uh, was it Ana de Armas that was in the preview of this movie and then her part got cut? Wasn't that, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, I think? No, I'm getting that wrong. But she was in some trailer of a movie and people freaked out and her scenes got cut completely. Fans of hers went to see the movie only to find out she wasn't actually in it. She was, but they just they cut her oh. part. So And that became a lawsuit, actually. Oh, man. And that's a whole other thing, but that's also infamous for cut scenes. So that's one thing. You're going to get versions and things that are shot. Not every frame makes it. So not everything is... There's a lot of deleted scenes, but when it comes to what we're talking about, something that was noteworthy, that really changed something. So let's get into All right. a few of those deleted there's scenes. There's some thick appetizers. Yeah, there's there's some famous ones out there. A lot of a lot of ones that are very personal to me, too, of, yeah, I remember seeing that or I know about that. Give us a start. One that comes to mind for me when it comes to versions of movies is that thing you do. From 1996, Tom Hanks' first directorial effort, and we've talked about that movie before on this podcast. Very good movie, very fun, very charming. There are bits and pieces within it, though, where you feel like there's maybe something kind of missing or there's there wasn't something that was fleshed out fully. For example, Charlize Theron appears as as the girlfriend for uh, for the drummer, and and she's at the very beginning, and she's in there. Um, and she's Skitch Patterson's uh, girlfriend. Keep in mind, um, she wasn't Charlize Theron of today. She was just an up-and-coming actress. So it's not like you hired a major actress for a small part. 
she wasn't a big actress yet. Yeah. She was getting there. So, yeah, so she's dating Guy Patterson at the beginning of the movie, but then they kind of go their separate ways when she she kind of stare like she gets um fixated on this dentist and ends up starting to date him. All you see is she has this fixation and then she kind of drifts off and disappears. Mm-hmm. Well, there in the full in the full version, the extended version, you've got some deleted scenes where you see a little bit more of her spending time with him and and you get a little bit more of a feel for that going on. You also in the extended version have a little bit more background on Guy as well as on some of the uh, like the drummers when they're first getting started. You have some more details on Tom Hanks's Mr. White character and some things like that. You have details that that could have been useful alongside the full theatrical version, but when you have the full theatrical it's like, "Oh, this was just so good on its own." It's like that stuff would have helped flush some more of that out, but you don't have those details in there. And doesn't it, take away too much. It's no, still a great show. It, you can. It's still a little bit choppy, and it would have helped fill it out. But at the same time, you're so used to what you have now as the theatrical version that it's hard to imagine anything else. There's the Howie Long part that's completely cut. That's that was part of what I was talking yeah. about with Mr. White yeah. and and his character there. That's that's a piece. Yeah, with but Howie Long and his cameo. It's also one of those where when you look back and you you maybe you can see a lot of these scenes that are deleted. They're out there. Um, but you can understand why they were lost. This will make this a fast, breezy version, and let's just have some fun with it. And you can understand the movie doesn't lose anything because of the loss of any of those scenes. Does it explain more? Yeah. Yeah. Can the audience figure it out and fill in the gaps themselves? Yeah. Good enough. Now, one movie where I think it really would have been helpful to have those things added in is another one that is much beloved for me, and that's Hoosiers. Okay. Which this one I don't know about. We've we've talked about Hoosiers before with sports movies, and it, it's a classic basketball, high school sports, just sports movies. As, as sports movies go, it, it's a classic of classics. One element of it, actually, two elements of it in particular that that are hard to explain. Number one, the return of one of the players to the team, which happens seemingly off-screen and you don't see it in the final theatrical version. You have this this player, Buddy, who has a bust-up with Coach Dale at the very beginning of the movie, and then he leaves along with one of the other guys, And but then but then he comes back, the, the one guy comes back, um, and, and he comes right back in immediately, and, and he apologizes, and Coach brings him back into the team. Well, then you have Buddy who reappears all of a sudden mid-game in one of the games later on down the road. Well, there was a deleted scene. For production reasons, there were parts of Hoosiers that got cut out. They weren't sure how the movie was going to do with uh, like with Orion, and they, they weren't entirely sure how the movie was going to perform. So you have Buddy returning later on, and... And, and you don't see it. it. It was one of those things that was cut. The other part, maybe more significantly, that, that was cut was a little bit more of figuring out how did Myra Fleener and Norman Dale go from just this icy cold relationship, especially her toward him, to all of a sudden things get patched up pretty well between them and they, they have kind of a romantic involvement then. How do you get to that point? Well, there was more detail with some of the deleted scenes that helped to get all of that piece together a little bit more fully. So there's an example where, man, I, I love the way it turned out, but there was a bit of a plot hole. There are a little bit of detail left that that stuff would have been helpful. Yeah. 
You know, there's things like that. One of my favorites that I'll bring up that kind of dovetails off of what you're talking about is one of my favorite movie, Aliens. Not the original. Yes. 1986. I was wondering when this was going to come up. I didn't want to save it to the end. I wanted to strike early middle. And there's a lot of good parts. You know, there's a lot of people saying, well, where you see the colonists in the beginning before they run across the aliens, I I see why that's cut. And even James Cameron prefers the theatrical version compared to the director's cut. The sentry guns are kind of neat. But the real big part that really makes a difference that would have added a lot more had it stayed in the movie is you learn that Sigourney Weaver's Ripley character had a daughter. Yes. And she's been in hypersleep since the last movie, Adrift. For 57 years, and they find her, and then she finds out that her daughter has died old and wrinkled. You know, she lived her full life. She promised she'd be home for her 12th birthday, and now she's gone. And that explains so much as the movie progresses and she befriends this the one surviving colonist, Newt, this little girl. It, she becomes maternal, yeah, but that's just her becoming maternal. Oh, no, no, no. There's a whole other subplot that's, you know, she lost her daughter. So she's, you know, for lack of a better term, has found a new daughter. Among the lists that I read coming into this episode today, Dave, that one was prominent in just about every single list, if not at number one among greatest deleted scenes or deleted scenes that we most wish would have been or, in movies. Or deleted subplot and various scenes that play out. and some Hugely that are, significant one. And some that are still there in the movie, but they don't mean what they mean in the theatrical version unless you know. Yeah, they turned it into a subtlety with the way that it turned out. It was a kind of a subtle thing of, yeah, of like you described, it could be, oh, her maternal instincts coming out or discovering them, or maybe that they were there all along. It leaves a lot of implied stuff. This, there, there's no implication. It's we've got it all nailed down there, and this explains a lot of the why. And that's one of the best. If you ever sit down to watch Aliens from 1986, watch the theatrical version if you want to, but the director's cut, I prefer it, honestly. It's It's got that, and it's got other things. It's maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes longer, but it's very, very worth it, Yeah, I think. What was it... Uh, uh, James Cameron said that movie is even longer with the director's cut version, which is true, but it's 40 miles of bad road, he describes it. So why would you want another 20 minutes of bad road? I said because it's better bad road. Well, deleted scenes are sometimes full scenes. Yeah, truly. Sometimes deleted scenes are deleted clips and details. And that brings me to another one I'm sure you have on your list, and that's from Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Very significant one that would have explained something, I think, a lot more clearly than what we got out of it in the end. So what we have is that Obi-Wan Kenobi held back on telling Luke Skywalker that Darth Vader was his father. What he said was true from From a a certain certain point point of view. view. But he had he had held back on fully telling him or at least so we've been so we've been told. And that's how it all turned out as far as the full version. There is a deleted clip though it's not even really a scene it's, it's, well, a, it's one line of dialogue it's very quick where yoda says that obi-wan uh, yoda's on his deathbed and he tells luke that obi-wan would have told him so much sooner that darth vader was his father had yoda let him which would have explained a lot more clearly the why on not revealing this detail instead we get something very vague and we get something that that felt kind of incomplete, depending on, on how you looked at it. But unless they were just trying to protect with, with not revealing that, that information to Luke. But it also does feel kind of incomplete, doesn't it? Well, 
is it incomplete from a certain point of view? Is it incomplete to leave out the midi chlorians, or did something get lost in the over enunciation, shall we call it, of how the force works? You know, people were debating this thing and that thing, and that was part of the fun. You that was the hair movie, splitting. That was hair splitting, but it was. It was part of the fun. It became part of the mythos. It became part of what made it so great. And then midi chlorines start coming up. Maybe it's just better. It doesn't necessarily have to follow the the uh, the Skywalker saga so close. The Force. Maybe it's you know it's almost like a genetic thing. Some people are just stronger with it. But maybe we don't have to explain yourself. this so hard. Exactly. So maybe it doesn't matter why Obi Wan did what he did. He did kind of answer in a vague way. Well, what I did tell you was true from a certain point of view. Does it matter that Yoda made him not tell him fully? Fully, it doesn't really matter. But it was it was interesting. But where you talk about or a plot hole, you could call it could be answered well. I've got a pretty good one. I've got two for this movie, but one of them dovetails off of the Return of the Jedi plot hole. Go to Independence Day. How can Jeff Goldblum get his Apple laptop computer to interface with this alien craft and upload this virus that takes to blah 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 Yes. There is a scene in that movie that explains how that works, and it's not a plot hole, and they had actually thought about it, but for pacing or timing. They went into the wreckage of the ship, didn't they? The, the one that they were able to pull out? The, all all these alien ships that had crashed in Roswell, New Mexico, is where all this digital revolution that came 40 years after the fact. For those of you who don't know, it, it's for, it's been in the mythos in the real world, whether it really happened or not. These aliens crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, I think. So now, 40 years later, they have this crashed ship, and that's what they used to fly back up. From the technology they found on that ship is pretty much what designed all computers up to that point. They reversed engineered it. So it's not so much an Apple computer. It's alien technology into an Apple computer just re-uploading into what it's already familiar with. So it's not a plot hole until they cut that part out. Yes. So, But the other better-known version, they had this on a test screening and it didn't. people laughed at it. And so they redid it. The end of the movie, and we've already talked spoilers now, there's the big battle and they're going to try to blow up the big mothership and they figure if they can take out this one, it'll take out all the other ones. Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith walking away, smoking cigars. But even before that, you've got this big battle underneath one of the flying saucers and they're out of missiles and all of a sudden here comes Randy Quaid and his his F-18 fighter jet. But when they first shot this, he is a crop duster and he's got an old biplane that he crop dusts. The plane that he shows up in in the original version that didn't ultimately make it to theaters was the biplane, not an <laughs> F-16 jet or an F-18 Hornet with a with a with a with a weapon, a missile strapped underneath. Straight it. out of North by Northwest. Pretty much. Yeah. He was just I don't know. He was going to untie a rope and let the missile fall and then shoot off. And that's the plane that he flew into the final shot. And people saw that like what? And they literally just cut and pasted it out and put an F-18 in reshot scenes with Randy Quaid in the cockpit. There, you get is an easy one to find. It's out there. But that was a big one that was. Whatever it was going to be completely changed because, yeah, okay, we, we went too far. I knew about the interface one because that was a huge plot hole element that had been left out. I did not know about the biplane. So yeah. I'm going to have to look into that one and check that out. You can find the footage. It's easy to find. It's yeah. on DVDs. It's on YouTube. Uh, another one that's huge that really brings in a subplot that wasn't a subplot when you saw the theatrical movie until a special edition came out. And this is, we've already hinted it, so let's circle back to Blade Runner. Specifically, the unicorn scene. Yes. So With the origami, right? Yeah. Well, without getting too into it, 
the question is, is Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, whose job as basically a futuristic police officer to hunt down these replicants, which are basically androids, uh, but they're called replicants. It is not so implicitly said in the original theatrical version that, rec- that Deckard himself might be a replicant. But when this director's version came out that included this unicorn scene and it leads a little more credence to other things, it starts to much more imply that he is maybe, in fact, a replicant, which is something when they did the sequel just a couple years ago, they didn't really touch on as much. But even Harrison Ford has said, yeah, I'm playing it like I'm a replicant. I believe I'm a replicant. But nobody has ever really, truly come forward and said he definitively is or he isn't. But the unicorn scene stirred up a huge bunch of debate. And as beautiful as the movie was shot and the elements and the way that Ridley Scott made it look, that is the thing that is talked about the most more than anything else, is the unicorn scene relating to is he, is he not basically hunting down his own kind? Yeah, it's a huge element and one of those ongoing fan theories related to that series, and which is now a series with the two movies that they've had, that gets talked about a lot. And that's where creative decision-making is so significant with what do you include or leave out with some of these deleted scenes. Because sometimes this is... This is rather big uh, on the whole. Now, with the director, it kind of comes down to what their vision is. Because some of these deleted scenes, it's it's just kind of extra stuff. It's it it might be, you know, it's like ah, you know, we'll we'll trim that out. But then it's kind of like you know, it would have been fun to include that in. And I've got a good example on that on more of the fun side. There's a deleted scene that I love from going back to Star Wars: Revenge of the Sith. A deleted scene that inc- that would have come from the very end of the movie when they quite fittingly had C-3PO be the last line because he had the mm-hmm. first line in the very first movie that was made and they intentionally had Anthony Daniels as C-3PO give the last line when they thought it was going to be the last movie that they were making and bringing the story full circle. After that, of course, you have the different images of everyone going off to their different places and what's going on, but there's no words spoken. There was one that was trimmed out, and it was Yoda landing at Dagobah. And you have a little a little clip of the music of what would then be used when he lifts the X-Wing um, when Luke comes in theme, and sees yeah. him. Yeah, the, the Yoda theme. So it, it shows him landing and just taking a moment to survey his new home that he's in. And it's very small, but it's, it's very poignant as well. And it, it's one of those clips where you go... Would it have added much? No. You know, probably not. It, it's And it's a relatively short thing. But I remember when I watched the featurette where they I, – I don't think it was Lucas. They had somebody else, I think, who was talking, and they said that was a deleted scene they deliberated long and hard on of if they were going to include that one or not because it's a rather touching little scene in there just seeing him land and bridging his own story to what came later. And they said, you know, maybe down the line when there's a special edition that comes out, maybe this clip will make it in there and be in there. Because that was a hard one for them to take out. And when I watched it, I was like, you know, that is kind of a nice, you know, finishing out Yoda's thread kind of moment. Rather than him deliberating around a table and then telling Obi-Wan there's more training for you, this specific Which they never really picked up on. Well... Well, we find out later, later but that was Obi-Wan. Though, yeah. it, took, it took a mini-series to get to that yeah. point. But 
It would have been nice for Yoda. Yeah, I know. Sorry. It it took Yo- like it would have been nice for Yoda's own story to have that included in there. But again, that's one where it's like you know that would have been fun to include, and it was a it was a very touching. But scene, even then, but it's I, not huge. Before the sequel trilogy movies, which were longer, but Revenge of the Sith, the Sith was I think at that time the longest Star Wars movie there was. At that point, I think they needed to start. We got to take a little here, a little here, a little here. I think that was one of the little here's that I just had to right. go. I think it was as simple as that. But sometimes it can, I don't want to call the Yoda thing a throwaway scene, but it might be as simple as that. There was a really good, funny, deleted scene from X-Men First Class that illustrates this. Now, you've got the younger version of the cast. Now, you've got uh, James McAvoy playing a younger Charles Xavier, Professor X, who right. can alter your mind, let's just put it that way. He can get into your head, and he proves it by creating the image in the mind of somebody else that Magneto is in drag. And, of course, they had Michael Fassbender. He's in a suit and tie, and they cut back, and now Michael Fassbender is wearing a dress and heels and a wig. The character doesn't actually get into drag, but Professor X is just proving to this other guy that I can make you see things that aren't even there. And then it really quickly cuts back to, that wasn't in the theater, and it's really quick. It's probably about a, I don't know, seven-second little addition to this other scene that didn't add much, but it was funny. It would have been a good laugh and nothing else. And beyond even that, staying with X-Men, a whole nother change. If you saw the one that came after that, Days of Future Past, there's a whole other element that didn't make it into the final scene. Pretty much most of the big original X-Men cast come back. But you realize that Anna Paquin's Rogue character really isn't anywhere at all. You kind of see her in the background more than anything else. Right. But they filmed a lot more with her. And so when it came out on home video, the Rogue cut, as it's called, which is by far the better version to see, all of that is back in. It makes it a longer movie. But it is absolutely worth it because though it would make sense that she would be the person to do some of the things that they just needed to kind of way find out. It was too long of a movie. We need to edit this down. Because she was at the very beginning from the very first movie. But yeah, so they, they she was in this one as well, but it was just too much. Well, what if we edit it in such a way that we can get the same story told but without all this other stuff? It's a better version when mm. you get her and the stuff that goes with it yeah. back in. It's, it's like aliens it's a little longer but it's a better trip i was going to add too with first class there there's the clip that you talked about there's also a couple of clips where you see more of the charles xavier moira mctaggart relationship that's included in there too because then it becomes a very subtle thing in first class and then gets picked up again two movies later in apocalypse but there was more in there that that again was also cut too i've got a lengthier true deleted scene hit me up to include from the avengers okay Long, I, think I, I think I know where you're going. Long movie, lots to yeah. cover in there. One of the things that is getting picked up as far as a thread is when you're going from Captain America, the first Avenger, into the Avengers, you have the fact that Steve Rogers has crash-landed in the present day and and suddenly is back in, in, in present times and has been, again, returned into present times. And he he's got a lot of processing to do with the world around him. Well, lo and behold, all we get out of that in the Avengers is him in a punching bag. Pretty much. That's it. And then he's just kind of thrust into this whole situation that's here. There's a deleted scene that, uh, deleted scenes, really, that are, I, I think, really, really good for adding in more of that bridge between Steve Rogers of Captain America, First Avenger, to in the Avengers. And 
him trying to process his life. Now, they get back into that in the next Captain America movie a little bit more, but I, I liked that they had a little bit more of an eye to that, where he he's looking over the files of the people who are either deceased, who he had known from his time, or in the case of his beloved Peggy Carter, who are now quite old. And, of course, that thread gets picked back up again in a, in a later movie. And now he's trying to take in the world around him a little bit at a time and and the world that was looking back on those old video clips too. And then he goes to a, an outdoor cafe and the waitress, this explains the waitress who seemingly randomly comes up further down the line in the Avengers and it's like why does this why does this woman keep appearing over and over again? Well, she kind of chats a little bit with Steve Rogers and then you get a Stan Lee cameo where he goes what are you an idiot? Ask her for her number. <laughs> like he's he throws that in there too, which explains her more and it also explains I think pretty well what Captain America was dealing with with being in the present day. Yeah, you know, but you could see why it was cut. One of the beauties sure. of that movie, yeah. it's long, but they juggled a lot of balls and they did it well. And yes. while there's everybody that's got something to go through, whether it's the Hulk getting things figured out or Natasha trying to get red out of her ledger, and they've all got their thing. To give too much time on all of that was just not going to work. It was just going to, the balls would start to get fumbled and jumbled and yeah. jumbled. It wasn't they needed ne- to trim it, it down. It wasn't necessary, but yeah. it would have been nice. It added. Yeah. But it's like, do you want to watch Lord of the Rings or do you want to watch the five-hour version? You know, it's going to answer a lot more, but my bladder can't take that. Do you, do you want to finally cut that one open and get into it? Because no. we've, been, we've been holding back on that one for a while now. Abs- Well, absolutely. But there's so much to it. It is a huge movie that they shot. There's there's one scene in particular, though, I think that is worth talking about with The Lord of the Rings. So, yes, the extended versions for The Lord of the Rings, they are famous now. I, I actually own them. Oh, yeah. So they, They're not secrets. They are extensive. They are large. They're like a completely different set of movies. Well, even you if, you, if you watch all of them back to back to back, isn't it like nine hours or something like that? Because each movie's close to three. And that's without the extended. I yeah. think that is with the extended. What is the extended? It's the extended like goes 9, beyond. 10? I think that goes beyond that. I'd have to look it really? up. Really? But and it's long. You better have the day. But when we're talking about scenes from The Lord of the Rings that were cut to get down to the final theatrical ones, which are which are great on their oh, own. Oh, yeah. It, it kind of is hard for me to watch the extended ones because I, I love how the theatrical ones turned out. But in particular, though, the resolution of what happened with Saruman in Return of the King, yeah. I completely understand why it had to be cut because that movie is so long. It is such a lengthy movie, and for good reason. But, man, it was weird when they showed up at Isengard and there's not even a mention apart from, and Saruman will dwell there and stay, and so he shall remain. And that's what we get from Poor Gandalf. Christopher Lee worked his butt off, and he's just not barely in the Instead, third Instead, we get him and Grima Wormtog's demise, which... They had to come up with some solution to that because, again, in in the books, it's way different than what we get even in the extended version of the movie. But they had to figure out some way to be able to tie that off without overextending themselves on the movie. And so that brings us to that deleted scene, which is a rather significant one among a movie series that had a litany of scenes that had to be deleted. But there was so much there. I mean, we're talking about three thick books. 
that were adapted into three thick movies. Unlike just The Hobbit, which was just one good thick book and they tried to water it down into three movies. No, that was a money grab. You were you knew going in, there's no way everything is going to make it. And they said, oh yeah, hold this, watch me. And they shot it all, pretty much. But even then, guys, something's got to go. In the day and age of digital media at home and home viewing, we can do this. We can put it out later, but this can't be on the screen. Maybe someday we'll screen it, but that's, this can't be the main deal. But it, it worked out beautifully. You put out these, call it abbreviated movies, even though they're pushing three hours long in excess in some of them. It was, they were almost perfection. And now here come the extended versions, and you may have perfected on perfection. It was crafted beautifully. So much that it was able to basically re-release the trilogy of movies in a whole other way. I can bring that into another one if you have another Lord of the Rings thought. Uh, I'm good on Lord of the Rings, so if you've got another idea, bring it on. They had so much fun doing the first original Anchorman movie. Oh, I've heard about this. That, again, they would, you know, as scripted, give me a take. Okay, now guys, do whatever you want to do. You know where the story's going. Just bring us there however you want to get there and have some fun. And and whatever dialogue comes up, everybody on that cast should have been given a co-credit in writing because they pretty much made it up on the fly. There was so much there. I don't know what the original cut of the movie would have been, probably like the original Lord of the Rings movie. So much so, there was so much cut footage just to get it down that they essentially took the parts cut out and pasted them back together on their own to be their own spin-off movie, Wake Up, Ron Burgundy. Came out the same year as Anchorman. It was a hodgepodge. It wasn't that good, but there was enough footage to put out a second movie that, I don't know, it's not a sequel. It's more of a companion. It wasn't that good, but it was just funny to watch the I'd guys I'd call it a sidecar. Yeah, yeah a sidecar would be a good way to put it. That was... I never heard of anything like that. They wanted to do that with one of the Superman movies, funny enough, just That's to come back crazy. around. Yeah, interesting. But it, Well, it with works. a comedy movie like that, I'm not all that surprised that they would have that much leftover footage and that it would kind of ride alongside as a, as a sort of compliment. Clearly an unnecessary one, but at the same time, like, funny. just, yeah, for being able to just have more of these funny people within the setting of this story doing their thing. Everything about that movie was just crazy and weird. Sometimes you miss something that could have been cathartic that doesn't make it. Mean Girls is one of those. Ah, yes. You've got very famous one here. You've got Lindsay Lohan's Katie character, and you have Rachel McAdams, uh, uh, oh, Regina's character. Yes, Regina George. And they start out as friends and become more like frenemies. And at the end, of course, there's the, the bus instance where Regina gets smacked by a bus. Lives. But there was no real catharsis between the two characters. Reconciliation. Yeah, that'd be a better way to put it. But there is a scene that was filmed that took place after the bus accident where they meet up, I think it was in a bathroom or something. Yes. And they make peace. Yeah, Katie apologizes to Regina and she accepts it. There's a narration at the end, well, everything turned out well. But you didn't see that one big thing turn out well, but they'd actually shot it. And it just, I would assume for the sake of time, they just cut it out. Well, it says it in the narration. That's good enough. We got to wrap this thing up. But they did film the scene. You can find it. It's out there. And yes. it is it is touching. It is it's a moment in a comedy that's not so much funny as it is we needed this. Set the stage for the speech that came then too yeah. just after that as well. It it would have been a good compliment. Yeah. Yeah, but you understand why it got taken out, but it, it was a good one. How about another one from a plot standpoint that would have been rather significant? And this is from another Ridley Scott movie. Surprise, surprise. So, Kingdom of Heaven 
has a key plot element that was cut out that you see sort of work its way throughout the course of the movie, but it involves Eva Green's character, Sybilla, in the movie, and you have this detail that her son had gotten leprosy, and you have this detail that's in there, and uh, it it helps explain a lot of her own character's motivations and some of her decision-makings of why she did things further on down the line, although... Ridley Scott apparently did regret cutting that out because it would have helped explain her character a lot more. Well, even though that was an epic-length movie, at some point, you got, that stuff's just got to go. Yes, there's and stuff was, on the cutting room floor. But when you're also trying to tell a story and, and make it all fit together and make sense, there's, it, it's there's, hard then. You yeah. know, that's one the, a movie that I can be a little critical on. It wasn't the best movie. I didn't really like it. I've seen it, I think, twice. There's so many long, lingering scenes and shots that, you know what, you could have pared that down if you really wanted the Eva Green story in there. Cut this down, put that back in. You're still going to have the same length movie, but then you get all the parts you want. No, no, I really like the way the sun shines on that tree or whatever it was. It, it's too much. It's too much. Something's got to go. So yep. instead, you really want that sun shot? Okay, then Eva Green's son's character, that goes. So you need to make those decisions. Sometimes it's... I don't know how I feel about this next one, but it's it's an interesting one. If nothing else, it's a good uh, notch in your trivial pursuit belt. The original Lethal Weapon shows the introduction of Martin Riggs' character, um, which is Mel Gibson's character. In the theatrical, you find him in bed, and he's just not living the world's best life. He's living in a trailer. And then, of course, there's a shootout with buying Christmas trees and drug deals. But the original introduction to him, which you can find online, it's easy to find, he gets called to a scene where there's a sniper. And he, you start to see that this guy is unhinged. You don't just see him living a lonely existence in a trailer. This would take place before the trailer scene where he basically goes crazy on a sniper and saves a schoolyard full of kids by taking out the sniper using, we'll just call it, unorthodox tactics. So you get an idea of who this person is. The same way you get an idea of who the Roger Murtaugh character is, which is in the theatrical version. He's just an old guy getting ready to retire. He's got the beard, and he doesn't like that his daughter says it makes you look old. Now you know he's got this crazy guy that's on the other side of the equation. It was, I think, a more appropriate introduction. There's a scene that takes place, I think, before that where He's in the bar, and he's threatened to be a little unorthodox as well. It introduces who the character is, but they kind of reversed a couple of scenes. So I don't think it's a loss, and I think the shootout with the Christmas tree and the drug deals, um, is it serves the same purpose. So let's we have, we have two shots that say the same thing. Which version shall we keep? And I think that's what it came down to. I'm pretty much clean out. I don't know if I can think of too many others. Do you have any more in mind? I absolutely can. We've gone to Superman a couple of times. It was Superman Returns was 2005, I think it was. Yes. This is Brandon Routh. The beginning of the movie, it sort of says it in an opening caption. It doesn't show it, but they filmed all of this, where Superman receives word that maybe Krypton or part of Krypton didn't fully explode and does exist. They shot scenes where where Superman is exploring the ruins of Krypton. He does find it. Uh, apparently, Krypton, uh, kryptonite really only affects him when it's within the realm of our sun. So he can be amongst kryptonite as long as it's nowhere near Earth, apparently. Um, but he's exploring it. it. But it was long and kind of tedious, and it just didn't really serve a purpose, so they just whoosh, axed it out, and they start the movie with uh, a, 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 a caption. So he went to Krypton, and here we go. And that's basically all it was. I've never seen footage of it, but apparently it does exist somewhere. There's, there's photographs of it. Hmm, okay. Um, 
Spider-Man 2 has got a really fun one where you've got J. Jonah Jameson, who runs the Daily Bugle, who's made it his personal mission to, that guy's a menace. He's got to stop Spider-Man at all costs. And in Spider-Man 2, he just wants to live his life, and he kind of gives up being Spider-Man, and he throws the costume into the trash. It's a famous scene from the comic books. And it gets turned into J. Jonah Jameson, and he puts it up on his wall. But there's a scene where it turns out he might be more of a fan of Spider-Man than he lets on. He has the suit on. And he's jumping around in his office from desk to desk, <laughs> and he's pretending to shoot webs. They're not really shooting because you know that version well, of Peter Piker. He gets he gets rest. very touching right before the return of Spider-Man is officially confirmed. It's left, it's yeah. left over. It becomes. It starts to hint. Maybe that, he's more of a fan than he let on. Yeah, that really adds that on. Now that the footage is out there, it, it is funny. It's not as readily available. You got to dig uh, a little bit, but it is out there, and it's worth watching. And besides that. He is such a good actor that you just Oh it, man. Well JK Simmons, I yeah. I can just picture it now. That that sounds so funny. Oh yeah. There's uh three more that I'll hit you with. Okay. First one is the thing. The famous ending uh, and I'm talking the nineteen eighty two right version that uh, John Carpenter had done with uh with Kurt Russell. Yes. And the famous last shot, we've already talked spoilers, right? So this thing can impersonate anything and anybody. We've talked about this movie. I yeah. think on a previous left it hanging details weren't all totally fleshed out, but it was. And because the last really? the last shot of the movie that you see is the two survivors. And the big question is, did they kill the thing or is one of them the thing? And you don't really know which one it is, but there's been a lot of eagle-eyed viewers like, I think only one of them's breathing. So maybe that's, the the other one is the, is the thing, maybe. They were a lot more definitive at the end of the movie, but they didn't necessarily let you know who it was, per se. But I better there was, brace myself for this, because I've never heard this before, and I, want, I like the ambiguity of the ending. Do you want me to tell you? Or do you want to plug your ears and I will uh, hey, Frankenstein it in? That's cool. That, well, here's one thing ahead. it doesn't necessarily do. It doesn't change who may or may not be the thing unless you want to look at the breaths or something. But it does explicitly state that the being survives. Because whoever it is that is the thing, in the original version, that whether it ever got screened in this or not, shows that husky dog, which is how that thing got to the place in the first yes. place. You see that husky dog, who is really the thing, run out of the camp. So clearly, whoever was has transformed back into the husky dog. And so the thing does live and leaves as the husky dog, whether it was McCready or um, who was David Key's character again? I can't remember. This. Um, uh, I can't remember. Um, those... One of them was. I figured the thing was still alive. It was just a question of did and if, they settle on And who? if you look at the breath, then it's implying that David Keith's character is because you don't see breath really coming from him. So whether that was just the way it showed up on film, because clearly he's really breathing, but they couldn't edit that stuff out back in 1982. They couldn't do that. All right, here's another good one. One of, uh, and I've never seen the footage for this one. So Unbreakable. M. Night Shyamalan. This is the one with Bruce Willis where he becomes a kind of a common man superhero, but without like super, super powers. He's just really strong, basically. And his one weakness is the water and Samuel L. Jackson is Mr. Glass. There's a scene that's one of the more memorable scenes in the movie that is in the theatrical where he's downstairs lifting weights and his son is putting on more weight than Bruce Willis is aware. And Bruce Willis starts to realize in this scene Maybe there is really something. And they put all the weight on the bar. Have you seen this movie? You know the No, movie? I haven't. So 
his son is starting to suspect there's something special about his dad. He's never sick. He's never this. And so he's got his little private gym in the basement. And, and so he's laying on the bench press by uh, bench. And he's having his son put some more weight on there, put another 10 pounds or whatever. But unbeknownst to Bruce Willis, his son is really putting on some weight because he believes something else is going on here and he kind of needs to prove it, not just openly, but prove it to Bruce Willis's character. And it turns out he's pushing up a lot of weight. And finally, Bruce Willis becomes aware of what's going on and he's like, Let's explore this. Now they're out of weight to put on the bar. Now they're hanging paint buckets just to add weight on the bar. So that's in the theatrical. That's out there. You could see that one. But there's another scene that comes after this. Bruce Willis, his job is as a security guard at a school. And uh, so he goes into the weight room of the school, and now he's starting to kind of convince himself even more that he might have something more going on here. So he's putting on a lot of weight intentionally. And in weightlifting, what's called a suicide grip where you grip the bar, no thumbs. So you have a lot, you really have to grip this thing with that kind of weight. Holy moly. So he's got putting up, I don't know, 500 pounds, and all these kids at the school in the weight room are like, look at this old man lift this weight with a suicide grip. So there's there's that scene, which is also, it probably doesn't need to be there. You can understand why it's cut. But it was an interesting scene, and it kind of, it kind of went off of that. I'll give you one last ah. one, which is pretty darn good. And it goes to, there's a director's version. You can find it anywhere. It's not hard to find. But if you see the director's version of Terminator 2, Judgment yes, Day. Yes, yes. There's a lot there that expands I've on what's already there. I've not watched this one, but I've heard of it, yeah. Well, there's a lot of different things that are in it. And little bits and pieces still exist, but it doesn't really answer. The thing that is still out in the theatrical version is it almost looks in a weird way like the T-1000, the liquid metal Terminator is glitching in some way, shape, or form. But it doesn't really elaborate as to well, what, how, why, huh? But there is stuff that was cut out that does elaborate that it's kind of starting to glitch a little bit, and it's much more explicit. That's part of it. Um, but beyond even more than that, there's a scene where you have uh, the, the good guy from the first movie, Kyle, who becomes, uh, uh, who becomes uh, um, oh my lord, I can't remember, John Connor's father. Oh, that's, yes. the, that's the paradox, is that he was sent back to save and becomes the father of the guy who sent him back to save. So it's the, it's the paradox. Michael Bean plays the role, and of course he gets killed at the end of the first one. There was a scene where in a dream he comes back to visit Sarah Connor, and it's a good moment, and she's just kind of hallucinating that she's with him, and they actually shot the scene at probably one day of filming. It was a sweet moment, it was a good moment, and it did add a little something to it. But even more so are various different scenes that are lost. One scene in particular where they're going to remove... Uh, a CPU from the head of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. And there's, you may not know, but Linda Hamilton, who plays Sarah Connor, has a twin sister. And they used her so that they could have various versions of Linda Hamilton. There's one scene that's in the theatrical where the liquid metal guy is assuming her shape, and then you get a second one. One of those is not Linda Hamilton. It's her twin identical sister. It was a real cheap, easy way to get that. They had another set of twins that they'd use to create the same effect. Clever. But there's another scene where you have, it was very brilliantly shot. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger sitting in this in this like car garage, and they used dummies and models and this twin sister to make this effect work. It's a very effective scene, but it serves more than that. So it's a kind of a part one, part two. 
You've got Arnold Schwarzenegger sitting in what looks like a mirror. And what it really is is a duplicate room where you're looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger, but the back of Arnold Schwarzenegger that's looking into this mirror is a dummy so that you can manipulate this dummy's head in a way that you probably couldn't do to Arnold Schwarzenegger. You've got the sister, Linda Hamilton's sister, I think her name is Leslie in real life, is in one of those shots, and then the one where it's clearly Linda Hamilton is Linda Hamilton. But the other part of this is that Sarah Connor is so determined that she's going to destroy all Terminators, including this friendly Terminator at all costs. They pull out this CPU for a reason that doesn't matter for the sake of our discussion. It's part of the plot. But she gets a hammer, and she's ready to bash this thing and basically wipe out Schwarzenegger's character right then and right there because she is just, nope, nope, this is what's going to happen. Nope, we're going to blow Miles Teller away. We're going to, not Miles Teller, sorry, Miles Dyson away. Sorry, no offense to the actor. And um, and it was just an interesting. She's blindly raged. This is not going to happen. I don't. Oh, really? Oh, that's nice. Bam. Anyway, you know, this is this rage that she will not let this character take over the future. She's just not convinced. And it's a good scene. The way it was shot, just from a technical standpoint, and the way they made this really neat special effect work with very limited special effects at all. And the fact that it helped does serve that point. There's a bunch of scenes in there, but Terminator 2, if you watch the director's edition, I don't know if it's a better version, but it's it's well worth checking out. You choose whichever one you watch, and that's the one you watch the most, but it's worth checking out. Yeah, that's part of the fun with these deleted scenes is that we, we've just given people ideas for places that they can go, things that they can look up. And yeah, I, I think with some of these scenes... It creates a real longing to see how the movie would have played out had it been left in there or to then go and look for an extended version. But like I was describing earlier with some of those movies that I talked about, it it's not maybe necessarily as if it would be that much better if you would throw them in. Because with some of these movies, we have an appreciation for the movie already. And it's been established because of what we got with the original as it was. So... Sometimes maybe adding that that extra detail in would have been good. Sometimes, yeah, maybe it would have been good, but maybe what we got was already pretty good anyway. You know, there's we could have a different version of this episode down the road. People that were cast in roles that for whatever reason dropped out or were fired or whatever. Oh, we have talked re- about that. Oh yeah, but yeah. this is this is kind of the same thing. Movies when you think about it is such a collaborative process from one guy or a team of guys sitting down and working on their word processor and coming up with a story. And then the way the story changes from when the director gets involved and the actor playing it differently and so on and so forth, it's a collaborative process. So whether this scene makes it in or that actor keeps the role or whatever, the way it could have been, the way it might have been, the way it was originally going to be and then it changed, this is a way to look at a movie that you know or don't know or that you love and you know every role, but you finally get another way to see it with a new set of eyes. It's almost like watching it with the commentary track on. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes that is the case with some of these that. deleted scenes. Yeah, I won't do it with a new movie. I want to see the movie. But if I've seen it a hundred times, I already know what the characters are saying. I don't need to hear it, but I'd love to hear what the director said about this scene when the guy did the thing. Yeah, and it's yeah. nice to hear some of the reasoning of why it didn't get in there, at least sometimes. Yeah. Lots to ponder and chew on and maybe even look up after this one today. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2. 
talking deleted scenes today. Pretty Hope fun we didn't discussion. spoil anything for you, but we did warn you. Yes, we gave plenty of warning <laughs> for that one. I mean, the signs couldn't have been more clear on that one. So enjoy going down the rabbit hole of looking up some of those deleted scenes if you're so inclined now. And until next time, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.